Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kuwait. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala. City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Frank Tokum Powell was born in Central Africa, in the city of Douala, Cameroon. Frank grew up in the 90s, and he didn't feel that he'd ever be accepted for who he was. After years of repressing his queer identity, at the age of 18, in the face of an unexpected loss, He left home, in search of a community he could call his own. Natalia Lopez has his story. I have five sisters and two other brothers. Not all of them lived at home because one was in the lived with my aunt, one lived with my cousin. But the house was always full of people. Uh, My parent also sort of adopted um, some other family children, and it's part of the custom to like have. You know, your aunt's, uh, your cousin live with you and your nephew live with you. So it's almost always um, that way. My dad first was a school teacher and, and he also had a convenience store. So he ran that with my mom. And as a kid, I pretty much had everything I needed. I didn't really lack anything. While some of Frank's earliest memories are of his happy, lively household, He will never forget the traumatic bullying he endured for speaking and acting differently than the other boys in his hometown. So very early on, I was called names. And I didn't really understand what was going on, right? What I was doing wrong. So names like Mademoiselle, which in French means means a young lady. Uh, Mollusque, which means uh, like a worm, a mollusk. And once I started realizing that those were like insults, it started getting getting to me, you know. I, I felt so, so unsafe. Uh, I remember going to school for the first time, kindergarten for the first time, and just crying because I didn't want to go. Um, I remember being picked on a lot. The insults and name-calling Frank experienced at school began to bleed into his home life as well. So this cousin had studied in Belgium and he came back and the only um, family that he had in Douala that had space for him to leave and, you know, find a job and things like that was my parents' house. So he started living in my in our house and he had a particular way of uh, coming up with names for me. And as he was coming up with names, I think the name... Um, Om Sanzo Motokwe, a man without bone is his name that he, you know, he created that name for me. He was mocking the way I was acting. So he did that. And for some reason, I felt like my mom sort of joined him in that they had like a sort of complicity in mocking me, which is very weird. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had no other reaction but to cry. Just Yeah. I just cried because... I didn't have, there was no one else I could go to. Because this is 
this was it. This is my family, right? Like, yeah, it started slowly getting to me and I just resented everybody. <laughs> I just resented everybody at home uh, from my mom on to everybody else. Yeah. She thought that mocking me, pushing me, shaming me was going to change me, was going to make me a kind of kid she would be okay with, you know, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And it's very, actually very hurtful and very harmful for the kid, you know, because um, I'm sitting here today talking about it. Entering his teenage years, these harmful exchanges began to fracture relationships between Frank and his family. As Frank began to understand more about his own sexuality and what it meant to be gay, he also saw how poorly members of the queer community were being treated in Douala. Fear of similar treatment from family, friends, and strangers alike drove Frank to stamp out parts of his identity. I must have been 12, 11, 12, maybe 13, and this was my first um, encounter with a queer person, visibly queer person. And this trans person was um, very popular. And they were, they were walking the market because where our house was nearby a like a popular market with, with a lot of people. It was just always so uh, crowded. And they would very boldly and, you know, and carelessly walk in that market with very long braided hair, lipstick, very tight jeans. Uh, they call her Tata, André. Tata, uh, in, in French, is usually used to say auntie. And André is a f Andrew. So, auntie Andrew. So as she would walk, people just like, kids would follow her. Uh, women that are selling in the market would like laugh, laugh to the point where like they're falling, yell at her, heckle. It was a whole phenomenon, like everybody comes see it. So seeing that as a kid, 12, 13, oh my God, this is a sign, a big sign of like, you have to repress it. Anything that looks remotely like that Andre, you don't want to be that person. You got to be in the, as much as possible, um, under the radar. Yeah, I definitely didn't, didn't want to be anything like her. Uh, and it's, it's sad to say because there was nothing wrong with her. Absolutely nothing with her, wrong with her. And because I thought that, I got in the process of like suppressing every behavior. So I became very, very shy and very, very like retracting everything in my movement, just keeping it to myself and just speaking neutral, you know, not, you know, not expressing, not being very expressive, which is my n natural state is to say things like that. And just, you know, happily, I was a happy kid. I believe I, I was a happy kid until sort of a morphed into that very expressionless type of kid, just not saying things with a lot of expression, very serious and reading too much type of kid. And that, you know, became my new sort of 
identity. And I wasn't seeing myself in Cameroon. I, I, I just felt like my people, like I didn't feel like I belonged. I remember telling my little brother, you know, I'm going to go and travel. I'm going to travel around the world. I'm going to go to Asia. I had no idea how and when that would happen. But I was like 15 saying that. And um, so that was like the theme as I was a teenager, writing my, writing my little uh, 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 um, journal, sort of writing things like, I don't belong here. These are not my people. This is, this is transition. <laughs> this is a transitory place. I'm going somewhere else. I don't know. I don't know where it is. The next few years were lonely for Frank, but one important relationship began to mend. I kind of like became kind of like closer to my mom and we started hanging out more. So my mom and I, she had a lot of plans where she was like uh, going to the family farm, getting food, bring it, bringing it back to our hometown and selling it, doing things like that back and forth. So we had a lot of time to talk. And so one day I sort of felt like I need to tell her this thing about how I, I grew up and how I felt like I wasn't really accepted as a kid. Like she didn't want the kind of kids, kid I was. Like I was not like my little brother or my older brother. I was always othered. And so I told her, I told her that, and she sort of like tried to convince me that it wasn't the case. She didn't say she was sorry for anything, but it, it, to me it was okay. She tried to convince me that no, I, nothing was the way I think it is. Like she really did love me. She just didn't know what to do with me because it was not because she resented me or she hated me or anything like that. By the end of high school, Frank and his mom had grown very close. One of their favorite things to do together was attend big celebrations in nearby towns where they would enjoy the food and company together. In 2001, Frank's mom made arrangements for the two of them to attend one of these celebrations together in Yaoundé, a city near their home. Frank's mother left ahead of him and called to say that she'd send money so that he could join her later. But the money never arrived. During that time, because I was a very fun teenager, <laughs> my mom also was kind of a very fun person she liked to go to like weddings funerals and weddings and funerals in Cameroon are like big events there's a lot of food there is a lot of there many people people travel to go uh, there is drinks beer there is so much and um, one time she had a plan for an, a big wedding in Yaoundé, which is another city. So in that funny way, she like, you and I, we are going to this wedding in Yaoundé. Of course we're going to go. So she had to, <laughs> she had to uh, go back to our family farm in her hometown. And, um, and she was going to come back. 
but not straight to Douala. She's going to go to Yaoundé to the wedding and she's going to send me money to meet her in Yaoundé. So, you know, go to the wedding because my dad didn't want to go either. And that was actually the last conversation I had with her. That was the last conversation I had with her. See you in Yaoundé. Somebody came, I don't know who, I don't remember who, uh, around 9 or 10 p.m., uh, just yelling in the house. He enter our main gate and just was yelling. And then the person just yelled, uh, Maja, my, because my mom's name is Jane, Majan, and died just yelling she died in an accident she died i just could not believe it i mean i thought for the for a minute i thought it was like a prank joke um and i was just like in shock i got no i have it was like just like nothing emptiness you know void i had never like spoken to someone met someone touched someone had food with someone and heard the person is no longer there you know and to be 18 and hear that oh my goodness i was like so traumatic so after that i was like okay this place is i have no connection to this place the rest of these people don't really care. There's nothing left. What else is left here? What is holding me back? Nothing. Let's fly. <laughs> Let's fly. After the devastating loss of his mother and with the help of his sister, Constantine, Frank finally found a path to leave Cameroon and start a new life apart from his family. So uh, one day, I came to her office and we sat down. And then I told her, what I truly want is out. I want to go. I want to leave somewhere. I want to study abroad. And uh, she said, okay. Look, go and look at what options are out there. If I have, if I can, I will, I will help you. And then one day she comes back and she said, I have an option. I just spoke to uh, her husband is a doctor, a veterinarian doctor. And he had like a colleague. I think that's correct. Maybe, I don't know exactly who, but she says this person who's a doctor studied in Kharkiv. I said, what? I said, Kharkiv in Ukraine. Ukraine? I was like, where is that? Like, I, I had no idea. I say, and, and he's like, what he says, it's like so cheap. And uh, this is a good option for you to go do whatever you want to do. So I'm like, well, if this is my only option, so be it. She got me a passport. I didn't even know how to make a passport. I was like, okay. Got me a passport, ticket, first year tuition, dorm room, 
pocket money up in the plane flying to Ukraine. I had a stop in Switzerland and then landed up in Kyiv in the middle of the winter. Ukraine was a fresh start for Frank, but this move to an entirely new country did not come without its challenges. Frank had no contact with his family back home except for his sister and knew absolutely no one in Kiev. Despite these obstacles, Frank slowly started to form new connections. There would have been many ways of connecting with people, but Ukraine was really just blank, brand, brand new. Everything was new for me. The language was new. I didn't know the language. Was, they speak Ukrainian and Russian. So when I got there, I had a very tough first year. Very tough first year. Second year, very tough. I, I thought I would go back because uh, I wanted to, like, I was crying sometimes. I'd go to class and, like, People are speaking and I don't, am I supposed to like graduate? What is this? But I did something. I met other Africans, Ghanaians, Kenyans. I, I followed this Ghanaian guys to the local church. And at the, at the church, at that church, I, I met this other guy, Slavic, who was playing the guitar. And I was like, oh my God, you got to teach me, teach me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And he invited me home to teach me. And I met his mom. And uh, while we are learning the guitar, she would cook borscht and make sure we eat. I was like, so like, whoa, this is amazing. So I, I sort of made connections like that in Ukraine. I tried very best to, to connect with Ukrainians when I was there. And that's how I quickly learned the language. By, the, by my second, third year, whatever the professor was saying, even if I couldn't write it as fast, I understood what he was talking about because I had so much contact with real-life Ukrainian doing things and, you know, going, going places. And that's, that's my experience in Ukraine. It was tough at first, but I met really great people. These new connections led Frank to join a local band and play weekend gigs around the city his life began to revolve around his singing and his schoolwork. So I would do school Monday to Friday. Friday night, I'd take the train to wherever we were going. And Sunday evening, take the train back to go to school. And, and that was my life for like <laughs> all the time I was in Ukraine. So I was like mostly, for the first part, mostly with Africans and then the, you know, getting to know people. But the last part of my time in Ukraine, mostly with my band members, with all the five guys. And I had a great time. So uh, the guys were very serious about doing music. Um, they had an opportunity, I don't know how, <laughs> to go and sing in China. It's sort of an industry of like people going going to China uh, to sing at, in, in hotels, nightclubs, bars, cafes, things like that. So we had that opportunity and we were going to pay, be paid very well. And by very well, I mean, back then it was like $1,500 a month. It's like, for a student, I mean, that's very good. So we packed with the girl and we flee to Ningbo. And then in Ningbo, we met our agent, Mr. Chen, who's a fantastic agent, and got us jobs right away. 
it was a very interesting because all of us were new to China. None of us spoke Chinese. So I was very close with the guys. And you know, just spend time together. We really banded together. We really were like brothers of some sort. And to this day, if it's my birthday, I'll get videos from the guys uh, 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 to, you know, but they, if, if it's uh, their birthday, I would like send them something. Up to that point, what they knew about me was just what I showed them. You know, so I'm really, really grateful for our friendship, but I still couldn't be myself. And I had to like somehow still pretend, you know, I fit in that macho world. Maybe if I had, I don't know if they would have accepted me if I came out right there, but I was just afraid of coming out there and what it would do to the opportunity that I had with the singing. After spending a year in China with his band, Frank returned to Ukraine to finish his undergraduate degree. After his graduation in 2009, he went back to China to work as a music agent with his old boss. Then, a couple of his friends mentioned an opportunity in South Korea to earn his master's degree in public policy. The South Korean government gives scholarships to uh, you know, outstanding students that are coming from the, the developing world. So I, I decided to apply and I wrote a very good um, uh, statement of purpose or something. And I, and I sent to the KDI School of Public Policy. And then I had an interview with them via Skype. And I passed the interview. I passed the interview and then they said, well, you have a full scholarship, you know, and with stipend to study, to get a master's degree in public policy. So when I did that, I went and told my Chinese boss, Mr. Chen, this is the end of my time in China. I got to get a master's degree in South Korea. Seoul, South Korea became Frank's new home. Everything was looking up for him until one mistaken keyboard click sent an email meant to update a close friend about his romantic relationships directly to his family. That email that I sent to my cousin, she had taken that and sent it to my sister. So from that moment on, I wasn't communicating with anybody from Cameroon anymore. It was just like I was like alone in the world. There was no relationship, no contact. And I really, at that point, was resenting them a lot. Nobody called me, nobody wrote me, no, nothing. So, yeah, I was just continuing my journey into wherever I was going. Towards the end, when I was, like, preparing to, like, writing my thesis. And thesis is very kind of lonely. So... I had a lot of alone time on my own, just thinking about like, what's next for me? And what is next for me was extremely scary because the fact that I hadn't spoken to family, that I had done so much for myself, that I was almost about to get a master's degree after all that time. I, have, I had achieved a lot for myself that I should be proud of myself. But nobody was. 
Nobody called. Nobody cared. So being alone, I started thinking, so if nobody cares, even when you're sick and you think you're going to die, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Die? I said to myself, I will not give them that joy. I will not give them the joy of dying, of collapsing, of, you know, surrendering. I'm going to live and I'm going to choose myself and I'm going to stand up. I'm going to do exactly how I feel I should be doing. So I went from meeting people in the middle of the night on the internet and secretly getting out of the, the dorm or my apartment and getting in the subway and going to the middle of some place in Seoul and meeting some people and rushing back and pretending in class like I'm that I'm the guy to slowly saying what if you just are like Tata Andre what if try it Frank decided he was done hiding. Nervous, but with his head held high, he made his way to a nearby area known for its gay bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. So I, I had heard of a, a, a place called Homo Hill in Itaewon. So I decided I really wanted to go to Homo Hill. Seoul is a very hilly town. So... Uh, it's just a street in a neighborhood where most gay bars are. So it's just, it's just a street. So I decided to go there and to go there openly, maybe around 6 p.m. <laughs> when it's daytime. So in my brain of that time, walking there meant a lot. It meant a lot for me mentally to conquer some of like the, the deep rooted shame that was like all bottled down, like all deep down of me to humble myself as well and say, this is who you are. You know, this is, this is what you want to do. You want to be there. It's true. I wanted to be there. You want to be there. So own up to it. Just walk there and see how it feels. So I went on a Saturday and just walked up that hill and for like entered this bar. Oh my God, I wish I remember the name of it. And uh, it was owned by this older gay Korean, very sassy, very sassy, <laughs> very sassy kind of like uh, owner. He's like, what do you want? What do you need? And, and you know, and, and I'm like, you know what? This is me, okay? This is like, this is what I'm here for. This is, and I just loved it. I just loved it. I was like, what is so shameful about this again? Absolutely nothing. I was looking at these people and I was like, this, these are my people. 
These are my people. I can identify with these people. This guy who is telling me the story of his parents and all of that, <laughs> I can tell the exact same story about not belonging, about resenting, about not feeling like you're worth anything. So I was like, I like these people. <laughs> I'm like, I like my people. So I decided to go there every Saturday. After years of feeling like an outsider, Frank had finally found a sense of belonging. He began truly living for himself and started up a romantic relationship with his current partner, Tristan. So that's when I sort of started um, started dating openly. Got a profile on OkCupid. And when I put that profile up, a month after that, that's when I met the person I'm married to today. How amazing is that? First time we met, the <laughs> it's, it's very funny. We met that day. The, the, we went for a, a date, actually. And it was a very awkward date. I lost my phone in the taxi, and the taxi came back, blah, blah, blah. From that day, there's not been a day that I haven't spoken to him. I was laughing all the time. We are joking all the time. We just loved each other's company. At that time, I started working for like a restaurant in Seoul and still finishing my, my, my work uh, at, at school. And he had this apartment. And as I was taking the subway, going to the apartment, I, knowing that he's there at the apartment waiting for me, I just had a sense of peace. I just felt at peace with the fact that he's there. Things were going well, and together they decided to make a final move to Tristan's hometown of Portland, Oregon. Moving to Portland was just like so real. First of all, getting an American visa is not easy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it, make let it be known. It is not easy. Although the fiance visa, it's pretty, uh, you know, maybe easier than others. Um, I got here in December. So rainy. Very rainy. Tristan came and picked me up at the at the airport, and so I got here. When I got here, our wedding was on. I got here on a Friday or, or Thursday. Our wedding was on a Saturday. My mom-in-law organized everything. All the family was there. His grandmas from both sides. His dad was there. Uncles were there. Aunts were there. Everybody. And I couldn't even mention it to my family. When I mentioned it to my sister, she was like, what am I going to do that? I was like, oh. So the difference was just so, so, so striking. So striking. So our wedding was actually very amazing because it was like just like so much family around. They were just so ready to like embrace me as a new family member and so loving and caring to me. I, I really, truly, I really, truly am blessed in that regard. Really, I'm blessed to have people like that around me. Though Frank had finally found love and acceptance through Tristan, his family, and within the queer community, he was still estranged from his own family back in Cameroon. It wasn't until his father suffered a stroke in 2020 that Frank finally decided it was time to go back home and face his family. So when I got there, my sister Annie came to the airport. Because my biggest fear was that I would get there and nobody would show up. 
And there are some people who wanted to not show up. But my sister, Ani, showed up. My younger brother traveled to, to see me. So then I met my sister, Constantine, the one that put me in the plane. I went to the, I went to a good, very good restaurant. We sat there. I brought her some gifts and like, you can't believe what you've done for me. And she was like, kind of resisting and kind of like, and then like, this is my life. I'm actually doing well. I'm working. I just bought a house. Can you believe it? I just got my own house. And she's just like, she looked at me and she's looking, I'm looking the same. I am the same, you see? And I think that the fact that she saw me in person, kind of like, let go of this thing. Just let go. It's, <laughs> it's not helping anyone, you know? And after that, in that journey, went to see my dad. So I actually went there, went to, the, to his hometown, and dad was there at the door. He had spent the whole week bragging to his new wife. My son is coming. My son is back, okay? I got a son who is coming back. So he stood there right at the door from the morning that he heard that I was on my way from, away from Yaoundé. He was just waiting for me. And then when I got to the, I got home. He just stood there and just looked at me. Just, just stared at me. I just stared back. <laughs> I was just staring back. He, he would be hug. He would hug me, and just look at me. And then we just sat there. I had sort of like started my sort of healing process at that point, and I told him that <laughs> the adult kid that I am is happy. You know, no matter what people are telling you right now, the most important thing for you as a dad is to know that I'm healthy, I'm happy, I'm thriving, I'm fine, I'm okay. The rest doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. With my father, it's still kind of difficult. We haven't had that complete conversation yet, and... My dad is getting into his 90s. And I honestly, thinking about everything, I had a great dad. So I think the love that I've gotten from him, um, I don't think there is any doubt there. I'm very happy. I'm actually very happy with her getting to a place where we, as a family, and I'm actually happy for my mom that this is happening because this is what my mom would have wanted. I feel content. I feel at peace. I accept myself. I accept how I am. I accept how I feel. I accept how I put my hand. I accept how I am. So there are still people struggling to this day, you know, and honestly, stories like this, it's just like to tell like, to whoever is out there, there's absolutely nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. And you are loved. You are loved. And no one, 
No one can take that away from you. Love brought you here. Love is going to sustain you. And that is not something that is disputable. It's just a fact. That's what I believe. It's just true. You just have to realize that you are loved. That is it. And that little kid that you are is hearing different messages. But this is the true message you should be hearing that you are actually loved. And, and lean on it because that's going to sustain you. Really. It, it, I, that's what I think. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced by Natalia Lopez and with audio editing and post-production by Todd Bays. The original interview was conducted by our stupendous executive producer, Sankar Rahman, in March of 2022. Many thanks to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for the use of their space. This episode is made possible by the generous support of the Marie Lamfrom Charitable Foundation. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.